We begin tonight, though, in France. Um, it's down to just two finalists now in the presidential race. There was a runoff yesterday involving 12 candidates. That how it, that's how it works there. The final two candidates then fight it out for the top job. Current President Emmanuel Macron was in the lead yesterday over far-right nationalist and uh, National Rally Party leader Marine Le Pen. She is his only remaining rival for that top job. It is a rematch of five years ago when Macron won easily to become that country's youngest ever president. But much has changed since then, and so it appears has Le Pen's odds of winning. Macron is still the favorite to win, rising in the polls. As a wartime president, he's been boosted by his diplomatic efforts with Putin. But his critics have accused him of spending too much time focusing on the crisis in Ukraine and not enough time on his campaign at home. So both candidates are back on the campaign trail today. And as President Macron said, the next two weeks will be decisive. So you're asking yourself, why do I care about French politics? Here's why you should care about this one. A win by Le Pen could shake France up in many ways. Amongst other things, NATO and European unity remains crucial in the fight to support Ukraine against Russia's invasion. Mr. Macron has strongly backed European Union sanctions on Russia, while Le Pen is worried about their effect on French living standards. Macron is also a firm supporter of NATO and a close and of close collaboration among the EU's 27 members. A winner will be decided on April 24th. That's in less than two weeks. Joining me now with more is Kurt Hubner. He's a professor of political science and the Jean Monnet Chair for European Integration and Global Political Economy, rather, at the University of British Columbia. Uh, thank you so much for being here tonight, Kurt. Good evening, Ben. This was, this turned into, in the last few weeks, a surprisingly closely watched race. Uh, how did the first round results shape up uh, as far as the surge of Marine Le Pen goes. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a big surprise. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, was uh, ascending in the last couple of weeks. The polls were indicating that it uh, would be pretty close, even the first round. Um, it, and she, she, she fulfilled those kind of expectations. She did better than uh, 2017. And uh, Macron also did it better than expected, but still, uh, the huge difference is, uh, from my uh, view, that the pool of voters that is now available for the second round looks much better for Marine Le Pen than for Macron, because uh, she also not only can now dig into her own voter potential, but also in the one of uh, Eric Zemmour, the even more far-right uh, candidate. And then, then there's a number third uh, guy, Nicolas Dupont-Aignan, who also got only 2.1%, but he's also on the very far-right side. So if you add it up, then the pool for uh, Le Pen is pretty big. And this is concerning. So this is legitimately unlike uh, 2017 when Macron, I think, had 63% of the vote. This is legitimately a two-horse race this time. I mean, a real race. Uh, definitely. Also, uh, you know, you have to see uh, that um, the far left uh, candidate, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, also won 22%. And immediately after the, the first round, he was stating uh, that uh, he would recommend his voters not to vote for Marine Le Pen. But it was not uh, like things happened in the past when this kind of dam against the far right was being built. And this was the, the, the strategy for all other candidates in the very past over the many, many years. Uh, this dam is no longer working because uh, it was not a, an active support uh, of Macron. And this means the pool maybe for, uh, for uh, Macron may be divided 
uh, smaller. And this will make the second round so very close. I suppose for a Canadian audience who may not be familiar, I think people might know the Le Pen name. It has been around now for decades in French politics. But who exactly is Marine Le Pen and how much would a win by her be uh, unprecedented to some extent in modern European politics, at least for a major uh, EU nation? Yeah, but the Le Pen family is uh, very famous uh, in France, but also beyond France. Her father actually was founding the first really close to, I would say, fascist uh, party, uh, very, very far right, with a lot of also uh, anti-Jewish uh, elements. Uh, it has all those kind of connotations that made him to this neo-fascist uh, representative. Uh, Marine Le Pen uh, actually separated from her uh, father, uh, but still her party uh, also underwent a couple of transformations, even with different names for National. Now, uh, uh, then she gave after the defeat in 2017, she gave the party a new name, but the party is the same, only a new name. So there's all this kind of detoxification uh, strategies on her side. And uh, uh, even though she was a bit softer in words, I think so. If you look at the program and the programmatic kind of statements over the last uh, couple of years, uh, then this would be an enormous break uh, for French politics, but also on a global scale. And then obviously, in particular, for the European Union, where France, particularly after uh, Brexit, is a very, very strong actor. And uh, what's really Macron played all his cards on the European level uh, without Macron with a different kind of uh, France, this would have huge negative repercussions for the unity uh, of uh, the, the European Union. As I mentioned off the, at the outset, for a Canadian audience who may be asking themselves, well, what, why do I really care who the president of France is? Uh, considering how much attention we've been paying to the war in Ukraine, uh, Marine Le Pen's links, or at least sympathies with the Kremlin, seem to be relatively well documented. This could be, uh, without without exaggerating, obviously, but this could throw a real wrench into the kind of European and NATO unity we've seen vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine for the last uh, 50 days or so. Yeah, I mean, she was uh, in the campaign criticizing Putin in, in very uh, strong words, but this is part of the campaign uh, politics, I, I would say. You're totally right. I mean, um, uh, until the Russian invasion to Ukraine, the recent one, not, oh, sorry, not talking about just not talking about uh, the, uh, the the Crimea and all those kind of things. Um, she was very close to Putin. Actually, mentioned a couple of times that uh, her program would uh, be pretty close to what Putin has accomplished in in Russia. Uh, also, uh, those little things that. Uh, in order to finance her campaign, she got those kind of credits from Russian banks. And uh, so it's a very strong relationship. And indeed, even with uh, now the critique to the Russian invasion to Ukraine, there's no doubt about it that uh, Le Pen made uh, it clear that she would not uh, be supportive for all those strong measures now and even to intensify them with the argument, this was also a part of her campaign, uh, living costs, that the uh, situation for French uh, citizens would be much more complicated uh, and so on and so on. And, but this was the justification for probably how she would uh, respond and act on the European level if she would become president.
I read one analysis that said a Le Pen win would be a, the biggest victory for Vladimir Putin since this invasion began. There is no doubt about it. I mean, uh, uh, it's not only uh, uh, Marine Le Pen. Think about uh, only a week ago, she was the, one of the first uh, uh, calling up uh, Viktor uh, Orban in Hungary for his uh, election victory. There's a kind of common front. She was very active in the last couple of years to build inside also the European Parliament, but beyond a kind of far right-wing alliance of uh, like right, uh, like-minded parties. So, uh, and the, all of them uh, have a lot of things common, but one thing that is, they have common is also much more friendlier towards Russia and Putin. And uh, so this would really uh, be very difficult for the European Union to continue their relatively high level of uh, unity when it comes to sanction and all those kind of uh, uh, policies uh, and tools being used uh, in regards to Russia. So it would be a, a, a past change. I'm speaking with Kurt Hubner, Professor of Political Science and the Jean Monnet Chair for European Integration and Global Political Economy at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the French presidential race, which looks to be a very tight one between incumbent Emmanuel Macron uh, and far-right leader Marine Le Pen. We've been discussing the implications of a Le Pen win on, amongst other things, uh, the unity that we've seen in NATO, the unity we've seen in the European Union, more or less, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the invasion of Ukraine. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the broader implications of a Le Pen win, as well as uh, the security situation right now in Ukraine. Don't go away. We're speaking with David George Haskell. He's a writer and biologist. His latest book, Sounds Wild and Broken, explores the story of sound on Earth, looks at the diversif diversification and emergence of sound and the loss of the world's sounds. I wanted to talk to you a bit about this fascinating uh, book that you wrote in 20, an earlier book that you, where you essentially observed a very small patch of land for a very, for a while, and then allowed you to see so much about uh, a much broader look <laughs> through that one little piece. What was the inspiration behind that? It's such a fascinating way of, of, of looking at something in such a, I mean, we could all essentially do that, right? We could all take mm -hmm. a little piece of land and, and then observe it for a while and see what we learned. Yeah. And my hope for the book is to inspire people to do that, whether you're living in a city or out in the countryside or wherever you are through close and particularly repeated attention to one spot you can go deep into the stories of that particular place. And, and in fact, I've done this with, with some, some trees say in New York City and in Denver, Colorado, where, where I returned again and again to a particular tree. And my second book, The Songs of Trees, was about that. But you know, coming back to the, the inspiration for this was partly I just wanted to go to the forest and without an agenda for a change, you know, as a teacher and as a scientist, I'm always bringing questions and lesson plans and things to the forest. And I seldom, I felt like I seldom walked into the forest just with open senses, without any expectation of this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to think about now. So I picked this little patch of forest. It's a place I'd never seen before. I just wandered on January the 1st through the woods and found a flat rock. And then the area in front, you know, flat so that I could sit on it with some comfort. The area in front of that, just a, this, an area the size of a small dining room table, became my focus for observations through the year where I could open my senses to the place. And then the second motivation was to try through that process of opening my senses to the forest to try and learn a little bit more through direct experience rather than just reading stuff in textbooks or in scientific articles 
in a, in a way, I was asking the forest to give me, you know, renew my sense of curiosity, and in a way, give me a reading list to go to the library because you know I love reading books and about things and learning stuff. But here, I wanted the forest to say, "Oh yeah, you saw this ant or a caterpillar or a leaf, or you heard this sound. Go and find out what that was, and 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 excavate some of the stories that are behind it." And then you know the book is trying to share both the stories and the experience of the ob- of observation. You did have one section of that where you sort of you where you're always sort of in wonderment at some of what is existing in front of you. And one of them is about resisting cold, which it turns out, as you point out so pointedly, humans are terrible at. We are. Yeah. I mean, without technological aids, we're, we're in, we're in trouble. And, you know, and so I went to the forest and just looking at the chickadees, right. And the the titmice, small, very common birds and thinking about their life in, in the forest. And this was on a day when it was a pretty good wind chill. I think it was down around zero or, or something like zero Fahrenheit um, or, or close to it. And, I, you know, I was really feeling it through my coat and my scarf. And I, I just, well, I'm going to take all these clothes off and see what happens, you know, which is, of course, high school students who think that's very, all very amusing. As, I, as you get older, getting naked isn't quite so interesting anymore. But, uh, you know, on a cold day, uh, I found that I could last a minute or two at most before my fingers started to go so numb they weren't working and my body was sort of beyond shivering. So there were all those bodily manifestations, but then then the thing that happened was my mind, in the back of my mind, there was this growing sense of alarm that this is a very, very, not just anxiety, but some sort of deep dread that this is a deeply problematic situation we're in here. And so you know, I put my clothes back on and then, you know, got back home and, and warmed up and that there, were, there was no problem with it. But then it, the reflection is I, within two minutes, I was getting into this very bad state. These little chickadees that are a fraction of the size and the weight of me make it through the forest all through the winter. And of course, chickadees, this was in Tennessee, which is a pretty mild winter compared to most places boreal chickadees are the way up there in 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 the north woods have an even even bigger challenge and all they have to fuel them they don't have a supermarket of course they just find little spider eggs and 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 uh pupae of caterpillars and, and, and things like that to feed this little furnace that keeps them going all the way through the winter and so even though rationally I can understand as a scientist, well, they've got insulation and, and they feed themselves a certain number of calories a day. And, and, you know, some of them don't make it about half of the, certainly the young chickadees die every winter. Mm. So I, I knew all that, but after this experience, I felt it in my bones. What a crazy, crazy life cycle that they have. And I understood myself different. We're tropical creatures that have only recently, even cultures that have lived, say, in very cold areas for thousands of years, in terms of evolution, that's a blink of the eye, that for most of human evolution, all human beings and all of our ancestors lived in the tropics or the subtropics, and our bodies are still that. And so our clothes and our houses and all that tech sewing technology is all about recreating a, basically a subtropical environment underneath the coat. David Haskell, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Great pleasure to be with you.